Well, good morning again, everybody, and welcome to Life Church Buffalo. It's so good to see you guys here today. If you're new with us, my name is Pete. I serve as the lead pastor here, and we are excited to have you joining us on this cold and dreary Sunday morning in October as we are wrapping up this series we've been in for the last few weeks called When the Devil Knocks. If you're tuning in online, I want to say welcome to you as well. I hope this message blesses you, and we look forward to seeing you here in person to be a part of the family that God is growing here at Life Church Buffalo. You know, as we talk about Halloween being right around the corner and a series called When the Devil Knocks, some people might say, why are we talking about the devil in church? Can we just change the focus and shouldn't we be talking about Jesus instead? And certainly we do talk about Jesus every single week here, but as a pastor and as a church, I want to help people understand that with Halloween just a couple days away, the devil is not just some fictitious made-up character uh, that somebody thought up to scare people. He's not a cute little red guy wearing a cape with horns and a tail and holding a pitchfork, you know, that was made up by somebody to scare people. He's a very real enemy, which is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, we've been talking about this verse for the last couple of weeks, that we are not fighting a battle against people. We are fighting a battle against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness and heavenly places. We all know that most of the time we tend to focus on the things we can see with our eyes, that there is a physical realm surrounding us that consumes most of our attention the things that we can see, the things that we can touch and taste and smell and feel. But there is a spiritual realm around us that even though we cannot see it, does not change the fact that it is there and we have a very real enemy that wants to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Which is why Peter wrote in his letter, Peter was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, he said this, stay alert. He's writing to Christians here. And watch out for your great enemy, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I just want to point out here that Peter chooses to compare the devil to an animal from the cat family, not the dog family, (laughs) the evil cat family. If you're new with us here today, that's kind of an inside joke. You'll learn that I don't have a particular affinity for felines, all right? I, I just don't like them. I am much more preferential to dogs. Uh, And so I just find it interesting that he compares them to a cat family. (laughs) Actually, I think now that I have experienced this firsthand, I'm pretty sure the translators mistranslated this passage. I think what Peter meant to say was that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a sneaky skunk looking for someone to spray. (laughs) Pretty sure that's what he meant to say because that is a satanic and demonic animal. I'm convinced of it. According to Jesus, who came to bring life and life more abundantly, he says that the enemy comes, on the contrary, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The devil wants to steal your joy, he wants to kill your peace, and he wants to destroy your contentment. He wants to destroy everything about you. He wants to destroy your friendships, your finances, your relationships, your family, your marriage, your kids. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. And so through this series, we've been looking at different roles or different strategies that the enemy uses to accomplish that stealing and killing and destroying. In week one, we talked about his role as the deceiver, and he attacks our minds with lies. Last week, we looked at his role as the accuser, and he attacks our hearts 
with accusations, but we learn that if the devil is our accuser, then Jesus is our advocate. And I'm so grateful that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and pleads and defends my case. He is my advocate when the devil throws his accusations at me. But today we're going to wrap this thing up by talking about the devil's role to destroy me, and he does that by attacking my will, our wills, with pride. So many people think that the devil only attacks us in areas of our weakness. But I need you to understand today that the devil also attacks you at the point of your strength. Not only will he kick you when you're, when you're down, he will attack you when you're on top. So many of you might think right now as you look at your life, you think, you know what? I'm in a pretty good season. My life's going well. Job's going good. Things at school are going okay. I've got friends. My family's good. My kids are good. I don't have anything to worry about. And I think sometimes when you are the least aware of the enemy's schemes is when you're the most vulnerable to his attack. When you are least aware of how the devil operates, you are most vulnerable to an attack from the devil. And so what I want to do today is show you an Old Testament story that many of you may not be familiar with. It's about a time when Satan launched a very strategic attack against a guy named David, who was a very famous king in Israel's history and if you're not familiar with who David is, this attack doesn't come when he's discouraged and weak and down. This attack comes when he is at the height of his power and popularity. And David was a guy, in case you're not familiar with who he is, who started out kind of as an ordinary shepherd boy. And one day while the army of Israel was out to war, David's father sends him with some food to take to his brothers who are in the battle and, you know, when he gets there, he hears this champion of the Philistine army that was fighting against the Israelites, hurling insults at the Israelites. And something rises up in David and says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? And something rises up within him, and he goes and faces off against Goliath and defeats him with a sling and a stone, which catapults him into overnight Notoriety. I mean, he becomes famous. He enters the service of the king. He becomes a military hero, winning battles left and right. Women are writing songs about him and singing to him in the streets. Like Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I mean, and this is when the enemy comes in and attacks him. Eventually he becomes king. And he, like I said, is one of the most famous kings in all of Israel's history. And that's when the enemy comes up and attacks. You know, if I were to ask many of you here today who are familiar with David's life, what do you think David's greatest sin was? I think a lot of people would suggest the sin that he's most famous for, which is his adultery with Bathsheba. That's got to be the worst sin that David ever committed. And some people might say, you know what, adultery's bad, but murder's worse than that. Because not only did he commit adultery with Bathsheba, who wound up getting pregnant because of it, but he wanted to cover it up. And so he basically arranges for her husband to be killed. And so he sends him out to the front lines of the battle where the fighting is the fiercest, knowing that there's a really good chance that he will get struck down. And indeed he does. And so murder is definitely worse than adultery. But that's gotta be the worst sin that David ever committed. But I would argue actually that if you take a step back and you look at David's life, that there was a root issue that actually caused those other two things to happen. That there was a sin in David's life that caused him to commit adultery, which led to him committing murder. And today I'm talking about, of course, the sin of pride. 
a sin that so many of us struggle with, myself included. When you look at David's sin of adultery, because of it, there were four people that indirectly died because of the sin of adultery. Not only did Bathsheba's husband Uriah die, but the baby that resulted from the adulterous act also wound up dying. And then later, Absalom, or, uh, David's sons, Absalom and Amnon, also died, all as a result, indirectly, of David's sin of adultery. But when you look at his sin of pride, the impact is much more profound. In the story that we're going to look at today, you'll see that 70,000 people wound up losing their lives because of David's pride. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, is where we're going to pick up the story. It says that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now again, Satan wasn't attacking David when he was down. David was at the top of his game. He was winning battles left and right. David's favorite song in his playlist on Spotify was, We are the champions, my friends. And we'll keep on fighting till the end. I try, guys. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to keep it real. I had somebody in the first service, first service after I did that, say, well, at least you're a good preacher, Pastor. <laughs> That's my, why my wife is the worship leader, not me. But David was at the pinnacle of his success, which is when Satan comes up and kind of whispers in his ear and plants these thoughts in his mind and says, wow, David, you are really powerful. Look at all the kingdoms that you've conquered. Look at all the people that are now under your rule. David, you should count them all to see how far your power and influence and reach extends. You can't just guess about the level of your domination and power, David. You should take a census and count them all up just to see how powerful and influential you really are. Now, just to be clear, was it wrong to take a census? No, of course not. The motive behind it, it what was, is what was wrong. And God cares about the motives of our heart. Taking a census wasn't a bad thing. In fact, generations earlier, Moses, who was the leader of the people of Israel, would conduct an annual census. But the motivation in Moses' heart was different than David's. See, what Moses would do in his census actually would, he would give every male age 20 and older a half shekel, which is a measurement of money, that was known as ransom money or atonement money. And what this represented was basically him giving glory and honor to God. We say, he was saying, we want to count how many people God has rescued and God has redeemed. This was him giving glory and honor to God by taking the census and counting how many people God had delivered. So if Moses' motivation was to bring glory and honor to God, David's motivation was to bring glory and honor to himself. Look at how powerful I am. Now, if I could just be honest and transparent with you this morning, I want to make sure you guys understand that pastors are not exempt from this struggle with the sin of pride. If anything, I think we are more susceptible to the sin of pride than many because of our level of influence. You know, pride gets the best of me when I'm in an argument with my wife and there's this thing that refuses to be the first to apologize because I've got to prove that I'm right. It's pride. 
Take festival, for example, last week, as we saw over 1,700 people from our community come onto our campus and experience, you know, our church as we just want to provide a no-strings-attached opportunity for people to engage with the church and have a good time with their family and make memories. And as I talk to other pastors, you know, that in the network of churches that I'm a part of, that we're a part of, and they share with me their fall festivals, and they say, yeah, we had 300 people come to our thing. And I'm like, oh, isn't that nice? We had 1,700 people come to ours. It's pride. As I look at the fact that the majority of churches in America are either plateaued or declining, and we're in the small minority of churches that are actually on the increase, I can look at ourselves and say, we must be doing something right. Look at me. It's pride. Because Paul says, Apollos planted, Paul watered, but God gave the increase. The growth that we've experienced as a church is all because of God, not because of anything that we are doing. And yet, if I'm not careful, I'm telling you, if we were to sit down over coffee and get to know each other and share, like, what, you know, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses? I wouldn't initially say that pride is one of my areas of weakness, but when you peel back the layers sometimes, what appears like humility is really a false humility, which is really pride. So I'm just being real and transparent with you to let you know that I struggle with this Myself, And this was David's issue. And others could see it too. Pride is hard to see when you look in the mirror. But other people can see it when they look at your life. And others saw it in David's life too. In fact, a guy named Joab, who was the commander of the troops, he saw the motivation of David's heart. Because in verse 6, we read that Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering as he was executing the census for him. Because the king's command was repulsive to him. He saw the pride in David's heart, thought this was a terrible idea, a waste of manpower and resources. Why are we counting up? Yes, you're powerful, David. But not only was it repulsive to Joab, the next verse says that this command was also evil in the eyes of God, in the sight of God. And so he punished Israel. And if you read the rest of the heartbreaking story, you'll see that because of David's pride, 70,000 people wind up losing their lives, all because David wanted to prove just how powerful he really was. Which was worse, adultery or pride? Certainly adultery is a sin. But I would argue that it was pride that even caused him to commit adultery. Oh, look at her. She looks good. I need to get me some of that. In fact, I'm the king. Who's going to say no to me? I deserve this. It's pride. It's interesting that when confronted with the sin of adultery, the prophet Nathan confronted him. And this is what David said in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. He says, I have sinned against the Lord when confronted about his adultery. But when it comes to the sin of pride, he adds an adjective to his confession to God when he says this, I have sinned greatly by doing this. When he committed adultery, I've sinned against the Lord. But when he confesses to God after his sin of pride was exposed, he says, I have sinned greatly by doing this. And I would say so. 70,000 people lost their lives because of his sin of pride. And if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to understand about the deadly sin of pride. 
And that is that you may never be more vulnerable to Satan's attack than when your heart is full of pride. So many people think it's an area of their weakness that the enemy's gonna get them in and he certainly does attack us there, but you may never be more vulnerable to Satan's attack than when your heart is full of pride. And some of you are vulnerable right now because you have no idea that your heart is full of pride because pride sneaks up on us. It's hard to see when we look in the mirror. Pride can take you out of leadership. Pride can take away your credibility. Pride can hurt your marriage. Pride can hurt your intimacy with God. Pride can hurt your friendships. Pride can hurt your effectiveness to share your faith. Pride can be your downfall, which is why David's son Solomon wrote in Proverbs that pride goes before destruction. He saw it in his father's life, and he writes that pride is what goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Pride always precedes destruction. That's how the destroyer wants to destroy your life is through pride, and you may never be more vulnerable to Satan's attack than when your heart is full of pride. And some of you might say, well, you know what? I don't really struggle with pride that much. How does this manifest in our lives today? It's not always so blatant or so obvious. Not everyone who struggles with pride says, yeah, I'm a prideful person. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's like, you know what? I've been following Jesus a really long time. I love God, but my brother over there, He's newer to faith, and I can't believe some of the stuff that's still going on in his or her life. And, you know, I would, I would never do that. I, I'm, I'm close to God. I read my Bible every day. I'm, I'm too holy. I would never do that. When you compare yourself to someone else, that is spiritual pride. Sometimes it's, you know what, I don't need anybody. I've got this. I can do this on my own. I'm a self-made person. I've worked hard. I deserve this. It's pride. Sometimes it's like, you know what, yeah, I I know I've got a problem, but I'm not gonna tell anyone about my problem because, I mean, after all, I got a reputation to uphold. If I told people what I really struggled with, what I think about, what I do in my downtime, I mean, they would look at me differently and they would think differently of me. So I can't tell anybody what I really struggle with. That's pride. It manifests in different ways. Sometimes it's in arguments with our spouse when I'm not going to apologize. She's the one that started this fight. He said this. She said that. It's her fault, not my fault. It's pride. We had 1,700 people at Festival. It's pride. And pride is disgusting to God. And we may never be more vulnerable to Satan's attack than when our hearts are full of pride. How does God feel about the proud? Well, I want to show you a scripture that tells us exactly how God feels about pride. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes something in his letter. And if you're here today and you're kind of skeptical of faith and you're not sure about this whole Jesus, son of God thing, let me just ask you this or ask you to consider, what would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? Because that's basically what happened with James. He grew up with Jesus, saw his childhood, and didn't believe before Jesus went to the cross. Scripture tells us that his family did not believe he was who he said he was, but then James saw Jesus crucified and saw him come back from the grave, and he became the leader of the church and says, Jesus, my Lord. But James writes this to help us understand 
how God feels about the proud. It says that God opposes the proud. And the original word in the Greek language that this was written in that is translated as opposes is actually a military term, which means to bring the full force of an army against. That when we, in other words, want to take the credit for something that God deserves, or when we don't want to acknowledge our need for help from people or, or our, our struggle with something, that God brings the full force of his power against you. That's a little scary, that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now that's the camp I wanna be in. I want God's favor in my life. And if you want God's favor in your life, he says, then submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. And the Greek word in the original language for submit is another military term. He's using military language to explain this concept is this idea of voluntarily submitting yourself to someone of superior rank. That when we voluntarily submit ourselves to, to God's authority as the supreme leader, to the supreme authority, then we can resist the devil, he goes on to say, who then has to flee from us. So many people want to quote, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Yes, but not until you submit it to God. See, so many people want Jesus to be their savior, but they don't want him to be their Lord. They still want to call the shots in their life. They don't want to live their lives the way Jesus says we should live our lives. And so they still want to have victory in their lives. They still want to have power to resist the enemy. But if they've not voluntarily submitted their lives to Jesus, say, whatever you want, Jesus, for my life, I say yes to. I'll turn away from the things that break your heart because I voluntarily submit myself to your leadership. So notice the order. First, he says, submit to God. Then you can say, not today, Satan. Not on my watch, not in my family, not in my marriage, not in my kids, not in my house, not today, Satan, because I've submitted to God. And when you submit to God, you can resist the devil, not because you're more powerful than he is, but because the one who is more powerful lives in you and Satan is no match for our God and he has no choice but to flee from you. What I want you guys to understand is that when it comes to God and Satan, when it comes to the kingdom of God and the forces of darkness, there is no middle ground. You can't defeat demons that you flirt with. You don't kind of love God you don't kind of sort of follow Jesus, but still kind of do the things you used to do before you made a decision to follow Jesus. You can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the church expecting that you're going to have the strength and the power to resist the enemy when he attacks. In fact, right before James wrote those words, he actually said that friendship with the world is hatred towards God. That should be a sobering verse for some of us today who are playing games with God, trying to straddle the fence, saying, you know what, I want, I want to know that I'm going to heaven, but I don't really want to give up these things that are kind of fun and I enjoy doing them, but they bring me pleasure, so I'm going to keep sleeping around with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Or, uh, you know, God, he understands. It's a weakness of mine, but, you know, he, I know he loves me. I know he'll forgive me. Listen, friendship with the world is hatred towards God and it's pride. God opposes all of the force of his power comes against you when you think you can do this thing in your own strength and you don't submit yourself to his lordship and to his authority. Pride says, I don't, I don't need God. But humility, 
Humility says, I need God every single moment of every single day. I need you guiding me. I need your word directing my steps upon your path. I need your spirit comforting me, convicting me, and speaking to me. I need you for my next breath. I need you for this decision I have to make. I need you to help me know how to love this person that is driving me crazy because I don't know how to love them right now. That's humility. I need your strength when I'm weak. That's humility. And when we humble ourselves before God, he will lift us up. That's what James goes on to say just a couple verses later. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I'd rather humble myself before God and let him lift me up than to try to lift myself up in pride and let the full force of his power come against me and bring me down. Because make no mistake about it, everyone will be humbled before the Lord. You can either humble yourself or you will be humbled. I'd rather humble myself and let him lift me up. There's no middle ground. It's all Jesus, 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 because he is everything. Why do you think God opposes the proud so much? Why do you think he brings the full force of his power against those who are proud? I think it's because if you go all the way back to the beginning, even before God created the earth, Lucifer, an angel that God loved, allowed pride to enter his heart. If you missed week one, we talked about the reality that before God created the world, he created angels, different categories and types of angels, one of them being archangels. And we know from scripture that he created at least three, Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer were archangels. And Lucifer was a beautiful angel that worshiped God, but with free will, he allowed pride to enter his art. And he's like, look at me, I, I'm, I'm powerful, I'm beautiful. And Isaiah 14 kind of gives us a peek into heaven that God showed Isaiah where Lucifer made five I will statements that wound up being his downfall. He said, I will ascend to the heavens, pride. I will raise my throne above the stars, pride. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, pride. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, Pride, And then the fifth one, I will make myself like the most high. Pride. And because God would not share his glory with anyone, God cast him out of heaven. And Lucifer became Satan, taking one-third of the angelic forces of heaven with him. And these demons that work for Satan, that do his bidding, are out to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to destroy you by causing you to think that you don't need God. He attacks our will with pride. Satan was all about himself. I will, I will, I will. But Jesus, when he walked this earth, was all about the glory of his father. Lucifer was all about himself. I will, but Jesus, if you remember, before he went to the cross, the night before he was crucified, he went to the garden of Gethsemane to pray and he knew what was coming. He knew the pain and the suffering and the agony and the torture that he would have to endure to pay for the sin of the world, for your sin and my sin. And he pleaded with his father and said, God, if there's any way for this cup to be taken from me, please take it. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. 
It's not about my power, it's about your sovereignty. It's not about my importance, it's about your will. Satan wants you to say, I will. He wants you to be like him and say, I'll do this. I got this, I can do this, I don't need God. Satan wants you to say, I will, but humility says, thy will be done, Jesus. Whatever I've gotta go through, whatever season I'm in, good, bad, hard, whatever, not my will, thy will be done. If Satan wants you to say, I will, humility brings honor and glory to God when we say, thy will be done. You guys, humility isn't weakness. True strength is acknowledging your need for God. That's what real strength is. When you say, I can't do this on my own. If you are never weaker or vulnerable than when you are full of pride, then you are never stronger than when you are broken and humble before God. Because humble submission to God gives you the strength and the power to resist the enemy who wants to destroy you. You guys, we are in a spiritual battle. It's not a matter of if you come under attack, you are under attack. And so how do we fight back against these attacks, against our will that make us puff up with pride and, and say that we don't need God, we don't need people, I can do this on my own, I don't have to let people know what I'm struggling with. How do we combat that pride? Number one, with humility, with humility. That's why James said, humble yourselves before God and he will lift you up. Voluntarily submit yourself to God who ranks higher than you and let him give you his power to resist the enemy. But the second way that we fight against the destroyers the same way that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks about how we fight the deceiver and the accuser we draw the only offensive weapon we have in our spiritual armor. We draw the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. This word is sharper than any two-edged sword. So when the enemy comes against us and attacks our pride and says, you got it going on. You don't need anybody. You don't need anybody's help. You can do it yourself. Hey, you're really important. People should pay more respect to you because after all, you're the only one that really gets stuff done around here anyway. You don't need to let people know what you're struggling with. You got a reputation to uphold. You don't need the church. They're full of a bunch of hypocrites and phonies anyway. You can do this on your own. You don't need to join a life group. You ain't got time for that. You can do this alone. You don't need anybody. This is all about you. Whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. You're the captain of your own ship. You can figure this out. When the enemy attacks your will with pride, you draw your sword and you fight back with the word of God. You say, no, I will humble myself before the Lord and he will lift me up. Because I'm called by your name, Lord, I will humble myself and pray and seek your face and turn from my wicked ways. Then will you hear from heaven. Then will you forgive my sin. Then will you heal my land. We use the word as a weapon to fight against the enemy's attacks against our pride. We draw the sword and we say, I will give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. Your mercies endure forever. You are my God and earnestly I seek you, my 
soul longs for you in a dry and weary land. My soul thirsts for you because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your love and faithfulness. Less of me, more of you. Less of me, more of you should be our heart's cry. We use the word as a weapon when our pride starts to get puffed up, when our ego gets in the way of what God wants to do in us and through us because we voluntarily submit to his lordship. Why? Why do we have to submit? It's because of who he is, because you are the Lord of lords. You are the king above all kings. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, because you are righteous, because you are true, because you are just, because you are my redeemer, my savior, and my friend because you are my rock and my righteousness and because you sent your son to do for me what I could not do for myself and you died on that cross and, I, and that you rose again and that you are my soon returning conquering king who is coming with a sword coming out of his mouth declaring the word of God waging war and gaining victory over our enemy the devil that is why I voluntarily submit to your lordship God because of who you are you are the Lord. You are my king. My life is not my own. It belongs to you. When we voluntarily submit ourselves to God's authority, then we have the power to resist the enemy because it's not our power, it's his. I submit to God and resist the devil and he has no choice but to flee. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Whether you realize it or not, church, we are in a spiritual battle and we don't have what it takes in our own strength to fight against these attacks. We were never intended to fight these battles in our own strength. That's a form of spiritual pride when I can go through my week and, and feel like I don't need to spend time with God. I got too much on my plate. I got too much going on. I got too many things on my list of things to do today and this week. I don't have time to spend 15 minutes with God. I can do this in my own strength. It's pride. You were never intended to fight these battles in your own strength. We were created to need Jesus, to need his spirit. That's why Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will produce much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do anything. Not only were we created to need Jesus, we were created to need his church, his, his people. We were created for community because when you're under attack, who's gonna have your back? Who's gonna remind you of what the truth says, what this word says? Who's gonna remind you of who you are in Christ? Who's gonna come around you and support you and love you through your storms? My question to you today is will you be humble enough to acknowledge your need for him? Will you keep going through life under the illusion that you can handle it in your own strength? Or will you say, or will you say Jesus, I need you. You're never more vulnerable than when you're full of pride, but you're never ever stronger than when you're broken and humble before God. 
which is why David said in Psalm 51 that the sacrifice God desires is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart or repentant heart. He will not despise. So many people think God wants our perfection, our performance. We think that he wants us to measure up to some standard that we can never achieve or attain. It's not about performance. It's not about religion. It's not about rules and regulations. It's about a relationship. And all he wants is our humility to bow before him and say, God, I need you. A broken and contrite heart he will not despise. That is the sacrifice that God wants. He doesn't want your performance. He doesn't want your display of false humility, which is really pride. He just wants you to voluntarily submit your life to his and allow him to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that you can resist the enemy and have him flee from you. So I hope through this series you have gained a desire to get into this word. Or should I say, let this word get into you. Because if we fight with the word, David said, I have hid your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If we're gonna fight with the word before it can come out of our mouth, it's gotta be in our hearts. And so I hope that you will be more intentional about starting every single day in this word, beginning that time with a simple prayer and say, God, speak to me through your word today. Plant it deep in my heart so that when the enemy comes against me, I can fight back and say, it is written. Get behind me, Satan. And so Heavenly Father, I just pray for your people today. Lord, I thank you that you are teaching us how to follow your example because Jesus, even though you are God, you didn't cling to your position as the son of God. You didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. Instead, you emptied yourself of all of your divine privileges when you came to this earth to become one of us. And you became a servant. Lord, you modeled humility for us to show us the way, to show us how to fight against the attacks from our enemy. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would convict those of us, God, who have operated in a prideful state, either blatantly or more subtly, to say, I, I can do this, I got this, I don't want to confess my sin to people, I don't want them to know what I did last night, I don't want them to know what I'm looking at on the computer. No, we're going to confess our sin one to another so that we can pray for each other and be healed. Lord, I confess this morning my sin of pride to you. Lord, and I just, I kneel before you as a sign of my voluntary submission to your Lordship, that your power would fill me so that I can resist the devil when he attacks and watch him flee, not because I'm stronger than him, but because you are. So Lord, I pray that you would birth in your church a hunger for your word, an insatiable appetite to consume your word, Lord, that it would be living bread to strengthen us and sustain us through every single day. Lord, we don't want you to oppose us. We don't want to bring, want you to bring the full force of your power against us. Lord, instead, we want to submit to you so that we can experience your strength and your power. you're here today and you know that you have never made the decision to voluntarily surrender the control of your life to Jesus. You've never acknowledged your need for him. 
maybe because you didn't believe you needed to, but this morning you know in your heart that that decision stands before you. You know that you have a spiritual enemy that's trying to destroy your life. And the sin of pride has been one that says, I don't need God, I can do this on my own. I wanna give you the opportunity to make that decision, to make Jesus not only your savior, but your Lord. And I wanna do it a little bit differently today. Normally I ask for all heads to be bowed and eyes to be closed because I wanna respect your privacy as a moment between you and God to make that decision. But Jesus said something very interesting. He says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father. But whoever does not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge before my Father. And so if you're ready to not let pride keep you from making a decision where you declare, I'm a sinner, I need God, I need him to forgive me, I need him to fill me so I can live victoriously, with all heads up and eyes open. I wanna ask if there's anybody here that is ready to start a relationship with Jesus today, will you just boldly and proudly shoot your hand up and say, yes, I need Jesus. I want him in my life all over this place. I see hands going up. Don't let pride stand in the way. Don't let pride stand in the way. Yes, this is what it's all about. This moment where we say, Jesus, I need you. Be my savior and my Lord. I'm proud of you. Church, will you pray with those who are beginning a relationship with Jesus today? Will you say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price for my sin. I am a sinner and I need a savior. Thank you, Jesus for loving me enough to die for my sin. And I thank you that you were powerful enough to not remain in that tomb, but you walked out of that grave to never return again so that I could have the power to live for you. Jesus, I give you my life. It's no longer my own. I give it to you. Be my savior and my Lord. I will no longer think that I can do this without you. Forgive me of my pride. And now fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength and the power to live for you and follow you and humble myself before you every single day for the rest of my life. Jesus be my Savior and my Lord. All God's people said, amen. Church, can we put our hands together? Make some noise. God's family just grew. That's what it's all about. That's why we exist, to help people know and follow Jesus step by step.